right, welcome to our Waroni News TV show. Mm, wrong medium of art, our Waroni radio show, um, produced for you by our news team members. So we have here today myself, my name's Alexander, I'm the news editor, we've got Rosie. Hi, I'm a senior reporter. And we've got Jasper. Good afternoon, I'm Jasper Harris, I'm a news reporter. Fantastic. So before we begin our news show, I'd like to acknowledge that we're meeting and working on Ngunnawal and Ngambri lands, which was stolen, and that sovereignty was never ceded. I pay my respects to any First Nations people here and listening. We are striving to put First Nations voices at the centre of reporting and to prioritise their agency in any stories about their experiences. Okay, so we're going to jump into it today. So I assume that everyone listening follows our Facebook religiously and has RSS feeds updated for our website. Um, but we posted an article just yesterday about the New South Wales election. No, it's yet to come out, isn't it? Sorry. Mm-hmm. It is on the website. But it, it is on this the morning. website, yes, yeah. but it's coming out this afternoon. So a bit of a spoiler alert, New South Wales election. And so um, before it hits Facebook and Schmidt posting, that forum of public debate, um, we're going to talk to Jasper about it. So Jasper, walk us through the election and kind of why it matters. Could it be a historical election? Well, this election is going to be historical for many reasons. So to preface, we're talking about the New South Wales state election, which will be at the end of this month on March the 25th. New South Wales goes to the polls every four years. So the last election was in 2019, pre-COVID, which returned the Len uh, Liberal National Coalition under Gladys Berejiklian for a third term in government. So we're now heading into what will the LNP is going to hope is going to be their fourth straight election victory, which if they do achieve that, will be the first in the state's history. No party has ever won four elections in a row in the state of New South Wales. So that is going to be the first historic factor. The other one is, is it comes at a turning point for the LNP and the Liberal Party in particular, because they have lost a string of state elections and now the federal election after being pretty dominant throughout the 2010s as Labor sort of struggled to find their feet. They've won a whole bunch of state elections. They're currently only in power in Tasmania and New South Wales. And so this being Australia's largest state and largest economy makes it pretty important. So they're going to be hoping to make history, as well as as we come at a pretty major point coming out of COVID and going into the 2020s with all the discussions around the voice, the renewable energy transmission, and all these cost of living pressures. This is going to be a pretty important election. Fantastic. You mentioned um, the idea that the LNP might be that kind of, that this would be a, a real feat if they win this election. Um, something I wanted to put to you, having you know, already read and edited the article, is um, we've seen kind of the rise of these like long-term incumbent state governments. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking Mark McGowan over in WA, Dan Andrews in Victoria. Definitely. They've been around in power for a long time and have set records in their states. Do you think that this is kind of a facet of like a Labour government in charge? Or do you think what we're seeing is that incumbent state governments are kind of having a massive advantage in the post-COVID election world? Yeah, I think definitely you can't. A lot of state governments, there weren't that many state governments which broadly got a whole lot of flack from their COVID responses. A lot of them responded very differently. You know, there was definitely, the biggest difference was between Victoria and New South Wales. But these two states are also filled with people which sort of like to compete with one another. So the fact that they have diverging policies was very emblematic of the two different ways they've diverged politically. You know, the sort of the centre-left and then the centre-right 
But I think incumbency matters in state politics because state politics is not as glamorous as federal politics. The prime minister gets to jet around the world very broadly. We do not hear the day-to-day, even week-by-week movements of the premiers of our states, even if you live in those states. They're sort of behind the scenes, but they also do, if anything, the most important stuff in government that you actually see every day, policing, healthcare, education, infrastructure. So the benefit of incumbency, if you think everything is going okay, you know, for lack of a better term, if the trains are running on time, you will re-elect your state government that nine is, times that out is, of ten. That is a good pun, by the way. Brownie points for that one. <laughs> Which is funny because if you judge that as a metric, the new, this New South Wales government is not doing very well because first there were strikes, which they unfairly blamed on the labour unions, but now a glitch in their computer system brought the entire transport network to a halt in Sydney. And so just purely based on that metric, should this government be re-elected? That's a question for the voters. Speaking of strikes, how big do you think the kind of current strikes are going to be? So I'm thinking you've got those train strikes that you just Mm -hmm. mentioned, but you've also got just today that um, I believe it was, and I'm going to get the acronym wrong, but the EMT union, the emergency ambulance drivers, have just announced that they're going to stop driving until the election. How big do you think that kind of workers' movement is going to be in this election? I think it's going to be huge, but the question is, is Labor going to be getting on top of this enough and in the right way to be able to win the swing voters that they're going to need to win this election? So if anything, it points to a broader issue in New South Wales, which is going to be tackled in this election. Both parties have extensive policies around building new hospitals, upgrading public transport and upgrading a lot of infrastructure, education as well. Those are the sort of the three central tenements. Transportation, around met- especially around the new metro, Healthcare, new hospitals, new ambulances. But the current issue is, is the Parite government have sort of backed themselves into a corner where to deal with strikes, they tr- they tried to impose an artificial rate of you cannot raise the wages of public sector workers by more than 3.5% per year. That is a rule and a law which is now in place, which means their wages can't keep up with inflation. But the other issue is, is in this time of increased frugality because of economic uncertainty and because of inflation, where is the money then going to come from if Labor, because if Labor really goes in hard on this, are they going to back themselves into the same trap that always gets sprung for them and they make a lot of big spending commitments and they spend too much money and the Liberals are then able to hang on into government? Yeah, so I guess picking up on the big spending commitments, something I found quite surprising over the weekend was... Obviously, the Liberals had their campaign launch and they seem to be leaning into quite a lot of big spending measures. So the one that really caught my attention was the $400 per child they're mm-hmm. going to contribute um, for like all 18 years of that child's life within New South Wales. Um, do you think it's like a signal that maybe they are trying to fight this like boredom with an incumbent government, that they're really switching up their tactics and maybe trying to cut off labour where they would be announcing bigger spending measures? Yeah, I think they are. I think also... Politically, they've also got to make sure that this current federal government is extremely popular and you can't dismiss the fact that that is a very popular Labor government. And so as a Liberal government, they're very much trying to place themselves in the centre and they're trying to position themselves away from the current coalition under Peter Dutton. And so that kind of policy, which is really – that is a great state policy because these state policies are around things like education and healthcare and things like you know doing launches with kids being photoed with kids and doing policies, you know, for your children and for the future of the state. You know, simply, I mean, if you want to be cynical, you could say it's a cash splash. Of course, the coalition is going to try and splash some cash right before the election, even if they can be blamed for their frugality throughout their time in office. But 
you know, truthfully, $400 for kids, that's really... You could be pessimistic, but at the same time, you know, it's going to be pretty good to ease cost of living and the fact that raising kids just keeps getting more and more expensive. But it would be great if that was... As much as I say that, it would be even better, though, if they could reduce the cost of childcare, which is currently the biggest impediment to young parents. And this is just another incentive, which is, you know, they'll think it'll be cheaper. But if you invest in education better, you'd probably get a better return on investment. But, you know, cash splash before the election, what can you expect? So thank you for that question, Rosie. We've spoken a bit about the policies and what they mean. My next question is, what about the kind of the other side of politics, the images? Mm-hmm. You know, Parate very famous photo of him in a Nazi costume. Yep. So what do we think about that kind of image side of it? How much is that going to drag Perrottet down? He's also, and I think the other thing that, you know, it would be interesting to see if Labour kind of hammers this home, which they haven't begun to, but he's religious. Yep. And so was Scott Morrison. And that really divided their rule. Do you mm. think that religious aspect would be a problem? And do you think, again, I hate to say it, will the Nazi uniform also be a problem? So far in polling, it's quite interesting how that isn't the case. As preferred leader, he only trails Chris Minns by at maximum 5% and as little as by 2%. So the, faction, the, the fact is it has not cut through. And that is, I think, a testament to his politics by getting on top of it and trying to be – essentially, religiosity is only really affected by about a third of the Australian electorate. It used to be more than 60%. Religiosity mattered a lot to Australians in years gone past. But for the typical centre-right voter, religiosity sort of implies integrity. And Dominic Perrottet has seen the lack of integrity the, issued by Scott Morrison and other members of the previous coalition government and has tried to get on top of that by seeing he's not as possible and by coming out early and apologising and by explicitly reaching out to members of the Jewish community to apologise for his actions. You know, as much as you can say, but from the time you were a teenager, you wanted to go into politics. Why would you do this? You know, that is that is still a stupid move. But the fact that, you know, 20 years on and in the middle of summer, people just kind of saw it, but crucially saw that he apologised for it and it seemed relatively genuine and it sort of hasn't put a stain on this. The, the main stain is going to be his government's record and also the government of Gladys Berejiklian. Yeah, so picking up on Gladys, um, the previous government and kind of integrity concerns, Mm. obviously we saw the success of the federal tails at the last election, especially running not only on climate but on integrity. We did. Do you think the tails have a bit of a chance of cutting through in the New South Wales? Also, a lot of those teal seats were in New South Wales. Yeah. um, Because of those integrity concerns. Uh, no doubt about it. So currently in the New South Wales lower house, the interesting thing is is the Perrottet government is actually a minority government. You need 47 seats for a majority. The coalition currently has 45 to Labor's 37. So Labor has got to win 11 seats to form government, which seems like a very tall order considering there's really only about seven or eight seats that you can reasonably project they have a good chance of picking up. So the balance of power at the moment, it seems like it's going to be a Labor-majority government with independents playing a huge role and taking out... Okay, especially also to go backwards on that. New South Wales politics is notoriously quite dirty and is full of a lot of interest groups. Very powerful. For example, the police union is extremely powerful. You pretty much have to be pro-police to get elected, as well as the big, as well as the big one is Clubs New South Wales. So there is a lot of political corruption and there is a lot of money floating around in New South Wales state politics to maintain the status quo. And that is also emblematic of the fact that these two premiers have not done a whole lot on pokies and on gambling reform, despite the calls for it. 
So going back to that previous point, with a very unambitious Labor government, but a whole bunch of very frustrated people in those same electorates that that switched over to those teal independents in the northern suburbs and in the northern beaches, I think there is very much a desire among them that they want to clean up New South Wales politics and the way they're going to do that is by swinging away from the established parties and back towards those community-focused independents. I cannot say with certainty how many are going to win, but by the amounts that are running and by the amount of press coverage that they are getting and by the fact that undeniably the machines of politics that were set up by the Teal Independents to win those federal elections have now probably very much been switched to driving up voter engagement for these state-level independents to clean up New South Wales politics. And I'm not going to say in all likelihood, but at the very least, I believe on the numbers I've seen, they will at the very least hold the balance of power in the upper house. It's to what extent they're going to hold the power, balance of power in the lower house. Yeah, I think just adding on to that about the Teal Independence building on that machinery, I was in Sydney recently um, in, oh, I don't know what you call it, the Mona Vale area. Um, mm-hmm. no clue what, I think that's the Pitwater electorate in Sydney. Um, and there was a Teal Independent running there who was literally the chief of staff for a federal Teal Independent, right? Oh, wow. So I think they are really building that brand image. And, you know, this is just me speculating, but a lot of them work together. And I'd be very interested to see if 10 years down the track you've seen something that looks like a much more formalised, institutionalised party. But we can't talk about the election all day, as much as I know Jasper wants to. (laughs) So you mentioned it a bit before in the cost of living and inflation. Um, So I thought we might talk about this. Um, We did, this is the article we did put out on the weekend, sorry for that mistake, um, which was written by Siobhan Perry. It's a really nice breakdown of what inflation means for students. So it covers things like, the increased grocery prices that we've probably all seen, but also things like our HEX help debt. So um, a statistic is that it's now, what happens is rather than paying interest on your HEX help loans if you're a student, it instead is indexed according to inflation. So last year it was 3.9% was the indexed rate, which was about an extra $1,000 for a student. Um, They were kind of talking about that being the new norm, but we've now seen that, you know, inflation is much higher than that. It's sitting at around 7.9%. So I definitely think it's going to be something different. So open it up to the table. Um, have we seen inflation around us? And what have our experiences of it been thus far? I think just let's talk about that for a second. Yeah, I mean, my favorite um, niche Guardian article I read every now and again is like the most cost effective groceries. Like they put oh, okay. out the like top 10 cheapest um, fresh produce to buy, which I found very interesting. Um, I think that's something that, yeah, I notice it at the shops a lot, I think, because that's something quite consistent. You're going every week, you're buying similar groceries, and you're seeing things just, like, kind of go crazy week to week. Um, I think it's something that people in rentals are experiencing a lot, not only in the prices of rentals, but also the availability of rentals and how you can kind of get priced out of that market. Um, but, yeah, I think food's probably the main one for me. Jasper, have you seen anything? Yeah, I have seen quite a lot. So... On Sunday, I went grocery shopping and I was quite mortified to see that my grocery bill had reached $109 for what was essentially going to be a week's worth of groceries for one person. Yeah, there were a few other things in there, which I don't buy every week. For example, I had to buy some more toilet paper. But the idea that $100 plus a week on groceries, on top of the fact that I am, you know, I also went to the Enlightened Festival over the weekend and I also went to the pub over the weekend and also... The other one that used to buy me was fuel prices, but at least they've come down and stabilized. But the big one with inflation is definitely these grocery prices, but I think the other one is going to be the mortgage holders. That's going to be the big ones. And from a lot of the reporting and the interviews I've seen with mortgage holders, 
you know, these interest rates, a lot of these people were really banking on the stability that they thought would come with stable interest rates. And I think it goes back to the broader question of the politics around the Reserve Bank. But I think, yeah, these cost of living pressures are really, they're really getting to me. I think one thing that we might see in the ANU, and it's something that's kind of hard because it, a lot of the issues at the ANU only reside within living memory, right? If it was more than three years ago, it's kind of not considered an issue anymore. Um, but something to keep in mind is that a lot of the rent prices on campus are linked to the rates of inflation. Um, in particular, I know ho- colleges like Bergman Hall and stuff have a similar issue, which means that you're jumping from you know rent increases of like 0.9% um, to now like f- 5 10%. It's, it's a kind of... And that is a pretty stark rent increase year on year because, as you said, with the public sector, wages just aren't growing mm. by that much. And we've already got issues around that. Yeah, the other thing I would pitch in is as someone who's moved off campus now and is renting, the amount that a landlord can increase your rent like during a lease is tied to inflation as well, um, which usually protects consumers, right, or like renters. But when the CPI is like 7.8% or something ridiculous, you're like, oh, okay, so like they can legally raise the price by that much. And obviously, yeah, as you said, a lot of um, a lot of students are either working in hospital or working in the public sector. And like both of those um, sectors are not having like very large wage increases. A lot of students are in the minimum wage, which we talk about in the article as well, um, as not really increasing or keeping up with inflation. So I think it's interesting that like your expenses will change according to inflation and what the CPI is, but not yeah, your wages or your income. Yeah, it's interesting because um, if we must talk about whose wages do increase because of inflation, we should mention the Australia Institute report, which is cited in the article, um, that points to around, I think it's 65, 70% of this current inflation that we're seeing is caused by company profit, something which I never learned about in macro or micro or high school economics, which is called a profit price spiral. Mm -hmm. It's pretty much where inflation justifies raising prices, but when the prices rise more than inflation would explain. So, you know, in, in, in classical economics, if your inflation is 5%, you raise your prices by 5%. This is kind of the thing of you're seeing prices astronomically higher, and so you're seeing profits astronomically higher. And it, it's fascinating to watch the rhetoric around, and I thought that's something we could talk about, is um, how the media really shapes this inflation. So I guess, like, what are you guys kind of seeing in the media in terms of how inflation is represented and what it means for the average consumer? I mean, I think there is a bit of, like, reporting on company profits. Like, I don't think I ever really noticed what Coles and Woolies profits were until there were articles about it. So I think some people um, are picking up on those. I think there's been a lot of complaints about certain industries. So Qantas has copped a lot of flack yeah. recently, um, which is obviously an industry like travel is very expensive at the moment. Um So I think I'm kind of like I'm seeing coverage on inflation and I'm seeing coverage on the profits of, you know, like everyday um, business names. But I think, yeah, I'm not seeing a lot of reporting on the link between them. Um, I guess that's just my two cents. Um, The big one I've noticed in the coverage is around the higher than normal commodity prices we've seen, especially on natural gas and so and hydrocarbons in general. So there's been a lot of coverage in Australia and also around the general Western world about the record high oil and gas profits, which are being generated. But it always comes up to that same argument where progressives will say there should be a um, a windfall tax on this Mm. to essentially help because you guys are getting a whole bunch of extra money. That's great. Send a small dividend to your shareholders, but give us a little bit of that back so we can distribute it throughout the broader economy. But that sort of juts up against 
the fact that it always comes up against the same argument of that is going to make the Australian business environment less attractive and then in turn we're not going to grow jobs and wages and then we're actually going to do ourselves a negative in the long term. So the re so the rehashing of that same conversation is quite interesting. The other one to me was it reminds me of the a very interesting interview with David Koch and Treasurer Jim Chalmers about a week and a half ago about the extent to which the Treasurer can change things in real time to go with the to go with the flow of the economy to make changes because that stemmed around the fact that he made a very tiny super adjustment to people with more than three million in their super that every dollar you make above three million would be taxed at thirty percent rather than fifteen percent and that triggered an exchange where he was essentially blocked into a corner where he had to say that there would be no changes ever to uh, the, the the you don't have to pay capital gains tax on your family home on your first home. And essentially it was he was essentially just trying to make the argument, look, I'm the treasurer. I need to be able to make changes as I go along and as I see fit with the economy. But he was butting up against this journalist who is publishing a lot of stories about how things are very difficult for the average Australian. I think he has more than $3 million in his super and I'm pretty sure he lives in a mansion. So we're currently jutting up against some real corporate interests and effectively there are too many loud voices with big supers and also big shares in Shell. And it's an interesting, It's it, you're definitely right, there's always that conundrum that you get as well in, in academia of um, everyone who gets to have this debate is already in a certain position. Um, yeah. They're already in that position with that super, you're exactly right. Um, so we might move on from inflation to talk about something which Jasper recommended we discuss today, which is AUKUS. So this is, for those of you who want to know more about ANUSA, this is a very federal politics-focused radio show today. Um, but AUKUS, what did you want to talk about exactly, Jasper? So it's pretty much the largest story that's going to come out probably this decade in relation to the defence community and our future national strategy, and it links back in with cost of living as well as current events. So AUKUS, AU, the UK and the United States. Essentially, it is the 3.0 iteration of the long-running saga to replace Australia's current submarine fleet. So we can get around to all types of questions about why do we need submarines and how much is it going to cost. But the cost estimate that has come out today is $368 billion, with a B, dollars over 30 years to equip Australia with up to six nuclear-powered submarines, with the first three coming from the United States. And essentially, we are the whole idea is this capability is going to not only replace the submarines that we currently have, but it's going to give Australia essentially an unmatched regional capability to be able to project power underwater and to deter any sort of amphibious threats. So the whole idea with a nuclear submarine over our current diesel electrics is they have longer ranges, they can dive deeper, they're quieter, and you're only limited by food. And so it's essentially an unparalleled weapon when it comes to securing Australia's maritime borders, which we do have quite a large one. So that's the defence argument. But this is coming at a time where a lot of countries around the world are pledging big on defence. You know, Germany is doubling its defence budget to become a bigger European defence partner in the light of the Russian invasion. And in light of the hysterical nine papers saying that we're going to have war with China within three years, yeah, right. There is this entire atmosphere around the world that we're investing in defence. At the same time, we need to be reducing inflation, cost of living pressures and getting on top of the renewable energy revolution. And so it just goes back to the question of where is all this money going to be coming from, which is the discussion we need to have. 
because there was a little bit of this discussion when Australia acquired F-35s, which was a $98 billion program, but now we're going to spend $368 billion on underwater boats. I think it's, it's yeah, a fantastic kind of point to make that it is so much money um, for a country that, while we obviously want, like an, okay, we don't obviously want, but you may aim for an unparalleled um, amphibious defense regime, we are like no America. We're no China and we're, we're not even, you know, a Germany, no. right? Like our, the idea that we could ever be a force for military power in such a sense that you can, we could veto things happening in the Southeast Asian region. Mm. It's a bit laughable, right? I mean, if you keep up to date with any academia on diplomacy and politics, what they're all saying is that Australia needs to be a middle power. It needs to embrace that. Yep. And it needs to work and walk the fine line of not pissing countries off, but kind of setting clear clear guidelines and clear rules, you know. So that looks like understanding that we're not going to be able to work with China all the time on Taiwan, but we are going to need to work with them on climate change. And so I think it's just, you know, it, it, I was looking at it while on the stair climber at the gym today, and it is just a real shame to see us kind of fall back into such like martial language around diplomacy and, and that kind of that rhetoric of, you know, like we've we've never been a military power by no means. And and I don't think it's it's fair of us to say we're going to be one, especially when a nuclear submarine is all well and good. But, you know, the real concern when it comes to safety is that a switch accidentally goes off somewhere and we've got a nuclear missile heading toward us and no submarine's going to do anything to fix that, is it? Yeah. How much of a question is this going to be a deterrence capability? Because it very yeah. much blurs the line of our current sort of military doctrine. Yes, we do have some ability to be able to do very limited powers of projection. So, for example, we do have our um, amphibious assault ships, which you could argue are in a sort of an offensive capability to be able to project power in places that aren't Australia. But nine times out of ten, their deployments are humanitarian. These submarines cannot be used for that. And I think that's, if I'm just going to jump in there, I think that's a really important point, which is that our best aspects of our military and our diplomacy combining is almost always humanitarian. Mm. I'm thinking of Interfet in East Timor and again um, of the, the mission in the Solomon Islands. And this sort of stuff, it it is what gives us a presence in the Pacific. I mean, there's always mixed bags of is it paternalistic, um, but at the same time, a lot of governments respond really well to it. And it's a shame that we're not talking or thinking about that, thinking about things like rapid deployment measures, and instead we're talking about submarines, which, and I think as well, you know, not to make everything a gender studies class, but it does it does feel like there's an element of, you know, boys playing with their toys, right? Of like, let's spend a massive amount of money on some sick submarines that are really cool. And oh, they're so cool. Like missiles coming up out of the water <laughs> to strike targets, you know, like tens of torpedoes. Like this is this is like Death next level. We've never everywhere. had this capability in this country. Like it just, it, it, it does. And, and, you know, I was watching it today and, and it is, it's, it's Albanese, Biden and Sunak. On the deck of an aircraft carrier. Yeah. And, and what, you know, what I was thinking of actually was that famous photo of Bush. With the Mission flag, accomplished. Yeah, with the flag behind him. And it's, and so I just think there is this absolute kind of area of we, we have not thought about this. It's just being, you know, someone said to Albo or, well, to ScoMo in the first place, wouldn't it be cool if we spent billions on submarines and you could say we've got, we've got some sort of nuclear capability? I mean, it's, yeah. Anyway, I think that's our rants. Our yep. respective rants about uh, AUKUS done. Um, we've got five minutes left, so I thought we would just do a bit about what's on, what's happening around campus. Um, but before we did that, um, just wanted to mention some other content you can consume at the moment. So we were talking a bit about corruption in clubs. 
um, Clubs New South Wales. There's a really big Four Corners documentary on at the moment about Clubs New South Wales. Ex-Liberal Minister, well, current Liberal Minister, but not recontesting his seat, has kind of come forward, blown the whistle a bit. And um, that promises to be a really interesting documentary. I think it's available online now um, with some written content to match Mm -hmm. it. Um, Something I'd also recommend is... um, Jasper was mentioning the idea of money and where is it all going to come from. Um, Again, Stephanie Keaton, modern monetary theory, fantastic new way of looking at inflation, new ways of looking at the budget. Um, Yeah, and that Australia Institute report around inflation and what's driving it. Um, Our inflation article is currently out. We're going to have um, uh, the New South Wales election article will come out on Facebook this evening. And then um, later in the week, uh, you can expect our National Day of Action article, which is a great segue into what's happening on campus. Um, so March 17th is the National Day of Action. It's a um, day of political protest um, organised, I'm going to say organised by the NUS, but I, th- I want people to understand that it's pushed very heavily by Socialist Alternative in their role as a major faction at the National Union of Students. So um, I'm not entirely sure <laughs> what the vibes are. I think there's probably going to be something in front of Parliament, um, definitely something around the ANU, a little bit of trivia for people who are interested is UCID somehow already had their National Day of Action protest, which I think is really contrary to the idea of a, of a National Day of Action, but mm-hmm. who, who am I to criticise? I just write stuff, right? So <laughs> it's, um, yeah, I think, look, um, I know Salt has a mixed bag around campus, but um, activism in any form is good, and if you're interested, definitely check it out. Um, something else to keep in mind is March 24th, a nooses housing um oh gosh housing action forum or housing forum group something like that um will be convening um you can find it on facebook and yeah there's one over the weekend as well yeah yeah, yeah there's yeah. one over the weekend um i think you know we've been talking about the cost of living and rent is increasing and rent is always a quite a predatory practice especially of students so i think you know if you're interested in that definitely get involved um yeah, final shout-outs. We are hiring for a deputy editor-in-chief. Yeah. Um, so definitely apply if you're interested in that. And if, as ever, if you have any news stories, um, email him to we'reonlynews at gmail.com or we'reonlynewseditor at gmail.com. Any final remarks, Jasper? Um, again, March 25th, New South Wales election. Uh, you don't have to watch the election coverage, but try and at least absorb some of the coverage around it. It's going to tell us a lot about sort of the coming year in politics. Um, and then I suppose aside from that, then that sort of leads us up into the May budget. That pretty much covers mm-hmm. us for federal politics this year as well as The Voice sort of keeps chugging on. It's been officially launched, but it's been pretty quiet the past couple of weeks. That's, yeah, that's all for yeah. me. Um, on the New South Wales election, some logistical information. You can go vote at Canberra Museums and Gallery if you are a New South Wales citizen. Citizen? Resident. 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 And you can check, I've been helping a lot of friends. You can check on the AEC website. Yes, absolutely. Um, Always a good idea to vote in your state elections. As Jasper said, they are important. Um, And if you are struggling with inflation and the cost of living, ANUSA has a large number of resources, things like food co-op vouchers. Um, The BKSS is open every business day. Um, Yeah, they do free groceries on, I think it's a Thursday. Um, and also on that, you know, and it's mentioned in the article we did interview them, the food co-op itself are a great space to go. It's a great, sorry, it's a great place to access relatively cheap meals. Um, you know, it's a hearty bowl of food for $8, which um, even they've had to increase because of inflation, but it is still something to consider. Um, so, yeah. Anyway, that's the news for this week. 
Tune in next week for more. I think we'll be discussing activism, how the NDA went, and a bit about parking on campus.